Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the actor and writer Jim Howick. Jim is a familiar face to a whole generation from his work with Horrible Histories and is now providing one of television's most important current comfort blankets in the form of Ghosts, which he writes and stars in as Pat the Scoutmaster. Jim also did things like Yonderland and the film Bill and appears in other people's work. He's recently been in Bridget Christie's The Change. He's in loads of stuff and he's lovely and he has chosen for his comfort blanket the film With Nail and I. Londoners have to wake up to this. And murder, and all brain, and rape. And I'm sitting in this bloody shack, and I can't cope with Withnor. I must be out of my mind. I must go home at once and discuss his problems in depth. Hello, Jim. Hi. Hello. Welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me. Have you brought something lovely for us to look at? I have, indeed. I would like us to look at With Nail and I. With Nail and I. Fantastic idea. I can't believe no one's done it yet. I can't believe it. We've had... So many of my favourites pass by, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't believe it when you told me that, that, that this, is, this hadn't been done before. Not been claimed, but a, a, definitely a comfort film, a film people watch again and again and again, and probably watch in their heads between, I think so. between watches. It's running in your head in the background if you're a fan, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's constantly there. It's, it, it's so universally loved. I'm so pleased to be able to, to plant my flag in it, the Howick <laughs> crest. You claim this now, this is yours. Which would be, I don't know what that would be, maybe a martini and in the background maybe a rotisserie chicken. Or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Get the, uh, the, the College of Heralds yeah. to, to run that up, that's perfect. We've just run out of wine, what are we going to do about it? I don't know, I don't know. Oh God, I don't feel good. My thumbs have gone weird. So when did you first see, is this a student film? Because it is for a lot of people. Totally. So when I first saw this film, I, I was 18 and I just moved from my hometown of Bognor Aegis to Wood Green, which in the 90s was still quite a troubled area. 
and I was sharing a studio flat with a fellow drama student. He introduced it to me because he's got sort of older, cooler sisters. <laughs> My sister's cool, but yeah. his sisters were goths and stuff. So, you know, right, cool. yes. a bit more alternative. In the hierarchy of sisters. Yes. I feel unusual. I think we should go outside. It was like a 4D experience. There was cheap wow. wine. There was sort of a bit, <laughs> bit of hash. And I was completely blown away by the sort of sense of romance, I think. Right. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor reduced to the states of a bum. Because it is, it romanticises that extremely grubby lifestyle. Yeah. It's a kamikaze lifestyle. It's a boozy, self-destructive, romantic lifestyle that I was, fair to say, indulging in and certainly looking forward because I actually watched it before I even started the course. Right. So I was just going down to sort of for the first week. Our course was delayed and we didn't start until October. So for the first couple of weeks, I was just sort of milling around Camden where it's set. September, it's a bad patch. I was totally living that lifestyle to an extent, obviously not quite as extreme. Yeah. I wasn't drinking lighter fluid, <laughs> but it was Lambrini. Yeah, so it was well, it's sort of the same. Yeah. The <laughs> same stuff. Even the wankers on the site wouldn't think that. That's worse than meth. Nonsense. This is a far superior drink to meths. The wankers don't drink it because they can't afford it. For a lot of people, what it puts on screen is a version of your life that you kind of aspire to and are frightened of at the same time. I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze. It felt like when I first watched it that they were a bit older than me. Again, I was a student and they graduated. And it had that feeling that you got when you watched Grange Hill. You know, oh, is this what life's going to be like? Is this is what the older kids are doing. Yeah. It was a bigger kids movie going, is that what's to come for me? Totally. In, and obviously in all its glory and all its wit and debauch and swagger, but also in its filth and desperation and misery. Totally that. It was a film about growing up. And actually within those, whatever it is, an hour and 43 minutes, you have certainly the first act. It feels like a survival movie. <laughs> and I'm a sucker for a survival movie. I love a survival movie. You know, Arctic with Mads Mikkelsen, <laughs> very fine actor. It's in Camden. We've got any implication? <laughs> to rub on us, you fool. We can cover ourselves in deep heat and get up against the radiator. Keep ourselves alive till 12. I loved The Revenant. Lots of people didn't. Yeah. I loved it. In fact, the first time I saw The Revenant, I was so hungover that the moment where he sort of climbs into the dead carcass of the horse, <laughs> I was actually really jealous because it oh, looked well, really sort of comfortable. I wish I was inside a horse. wish I was inside a dead horse <laughs> instead oh. of Enfield Cineworld. And why has my head gone numb? Yeah, I love a survival movie. And it feels like that. The idea that they go to the pub and have this crazy itinerary. We're, we're going to get into the pub at opening time. We're going to get wrecked. Then we're going to eat a pork pie. All right, this is the plan. We'll get in there and get wrecked. Then we'll eat a pork pie. I mean, that is my sort of plan, even now. Then we'll drop a couple of sevens or fifties each. Means we'll miss out on Monday, but come up smiling Tuesday morning. First time I watched it, I didn't know what it was going to be. It's yeah. very hard to remember what it felt like to watch with Nan and I without knowing with Nan and I. You are cordially invited to spend a carefree weekend in the English countryside. And once you do know the stakes and the world and the language of it and what's going on, then it becomes really comforting because you know what's coming. The first time around I watched it, I think until they got the chicken, they're trying to kill the chicken, I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I thought, what, what are they after? Where are they going? No one's told me what they're after. Watching it again this time around for this, for probably first time in 15 years, I thought, it's really clear. They say what they want. 
but they talk about it as if it's a military mission. Yes. All right, we're going to have to work quickly. A pair of quadruple whiskies and another pair of pints, please. They talk about it as if it is survival. They over-dramatise their lives. Totally, yes. And I hadn't noticed how funny it was that these drama students, these actors who aren't allowed to act, yeah. are then making a drama out of their very banal lives. Right, you fucker. I'm going to do the washing up. No, no you can't. It's impossible, I swear. I've looked into it. Listen to me, listen to me. And that is something that's got in common with Spaced. Yes. The idea that you're living in a film and that you're massively, massively overdramatic. And that's what's funny about it. We'll see you at the rendezvous. <laughs> okay, Tim. Good luck. It's this Shakespearean military survival language used for getting an egg sandwich or a pint. Yeah, absolutely. To the minute. You haven't slept in 60 hours. You're in no state to tackle it. Wait till the morning. We'll go in together. This is the morning. Stand aside. This is our mission. This is what we've got. This yeah. is our supplies. It's the Beatles in America. Yeah. 1806, you're out of the lift. <laughs> 1809, you're in the lift. It's that, but replaced with cider and gin and pork pie. Two large gins, two pints of cider, ice in the cider. And the way they talk about it is very funny. And you know how little they've got and how much they want. They say it out loud. And it's described, if you look it up in, in on any sort of movie site, as two out-of-work actors living in poverty. And then early on, Richard E. Grant waves a £10 note. And later on, they get a pair of blues. They get £10 of... I looked yeah. up, do you know how much that is? It's £140. <laughs> a pair of blues. What's brilliant about Within Another Life is they're not in poverty. They're doing absolutely fine if they didn't spend all the money on booze. Yeah. And it never occurred to me that what's joyous and comforting about this film is it's got the feel of poverty, but they've got wealth around them. I'm just trying to establish it in some sort of context you'd understand. What do you mean by that? I mean, free to those that can afford it, very expensive to those that can't. They're going to be fine. They're desperate. But also there's a sort of almost a PG Woodhouse level of, no matter how desperate this gets, they're of a class and access to money that they're sort of playing at this. Yes. So they're probably going to be okay. And your job as a viewer is to pretend it's as desperate as they think it is. And then you can laugh because they're probably safe. Totally. Why don't you ask your father for some money? If we had some money, we could go away. Why don't you ask your father? It's going to be so cold in here. There's an awful lot of snobbery in the film. In fact, you know, the, rea the reality is, is that they're living a lie. Yes. When they visit <laughs> Uncle Monty's house and Uncle Monty inquires on how Withnell's career is going, he tells a load of porkies. Yeah, he says, so, he's very, very busy in film. Very busy and, and my agent's directing me towards RSC. <laughs> you know, and we've just seen quite clearly that he's, he's eaten a raw potato. That's yeah. the only food he's eaten and he's got a sole flapping off his shoe and he's 30 next month. <laughs> So it's the idea of how long... Because we don't know how fresh they are out of drama school yes. in the film. We don't know that. So it's they've the got agents and things. So they obviously, they've, they've done okay. Yeah, but they're happy to sort of almost live in secret squalor. Yes. My father was loaded and asked him for some money. Your father's my father. You wouldn't get it. It's funny because it's a film that stayed with me through drama school, through different aspects, almost through different acts, actually. I've got us a bottle open. Confiscated it from Monty Supplies. 53 Margot, best of the century. So when the film's over and he's left alone, it very much reminds me still of, of the time when our student house broke up because one of our flatmates got a job in touring Miss Saigon <laughs> yeah. and another one went on tour in Italy. And, and, and so we had to all say goodbye. Yeah. And 
That is when life became terrifying. You get the part, man. I've got a different one. <laughs> they want me to play the lead. Congratulations. Being yeah. an actor in your 20s is terrifying. You're thrown out into the real world and it's extremely insecure. Very. Four floors up on the Charing Cross Road and never a job at the top of them. It's financially and also from pride point of view you have an awful lot of people telling you certainly if you come from a working class background you have an awful lot of people telling you that it beats a proper job yeah yeah and so when it doesn't work out certainly for the first few years it does cross your mind how am i going to sort of sell this how am i going to sort of pretend that i'm happier than i am rather busy uncle tv and stuff my agent's attempting to edge me towards the Royal Shakespeare Company again. Oh, splendid. You know, luckily, when I was 26, I started working regularly. But when I was working at Ticketmaster, for the second year that I was working at Ticketmaster, there were quite a few people, certainly back at home, who would sort of indicate maybe I should, you know, give it up. Because it's a gamble. <laughs> it and is, I mean, yeah. any yeah. freelance job is a bit of a gamble. Any job in the arts is a gamble. And any job where there's as much rejection, you do the same amount of work for a job you don't get as a job you do get. And it's one of the things that people don't understand about, about the, the arts generally is that you might do really well out of a job. Pay yeah. really well for doing that. But no, there were many, many days where you were working just as hard and the pay was zero. I've already put two shilling pieces in. No, I haven't got another. And... When you look at how it breaks down over a year, you're probably, as people, authors are and actors are, you're probably making minimum wage if you're really lucky. Why wouldn't they see me? This is ridiculous. I haven't been up for a job in three months. They've come out of drama school. They're good. I'm going to be a star, he says. They're perfectly good actors. But that makes no difference to their earning potential and they are living in a strange, numbed depression about the difference between their aspirations and the reality of their lives. Understudy Constantine. I'm not going to understudy Constantine. Why can't I play the part? And that's a very specific thing to your early days as a creative of any sort, a musician, an actor, a writer. You won't be able to pull the money in and you're just gambling on one thing working out. Yeah. Listen, I pay you 10% to do that. Well, lick 10% of the asses for me then. Hello? And then, I mean, that's a different, that's the sort of disparity between the two characters and the respect that that scene at the phone box when with, with now is op- offered to understudy Constantine, the seagull, <laughs> yeah. and he point blank refuses and hangs yeah. up on his agent, or his agent hangs up on him eventually. But it's I or Marwood, isn't it? Marwood. You would only know that if you read the script, I suppose, right? Yeah, exactly. He's, he's never it's referred never to really as Marwood. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah. But he basically says, well, why not? Why not yeah. do that? Won't take the work. Uh, why not take the work? Take the money. Apparently they're still seeing people. You want to go to Manchester anyway? Play a bloody soldier. Aren't I? I don't know, do But there's a pride issue, a huge pride issue, and and this, I suppose, not delusionary, but, but certainly a sense of, I should be better. Bastards! You'll suffer! I'll show the lot of you! I'm going to be a Probably because he's from a privileged place, exactly, this character. Exactly. That is the thing I hadn't spotted with this before. And I watched it thinking, I loved this film. And, and its sense of swagger and entitlement and wit and language and the, the sort of languorousness of the world of Uncle Monty and, and, and Withnall that they just swagger about. Money will come from somewhere. There's a very interesting class thing going on in Withnall in that Withnall and Uncle Monty have a swagger, an entitlement that Marwood doesn't have. 
And Marwood, by all accounts, represents Bruce Robinson, the director and writer. There's a lovely thing, David Dundas, who's his old flatmate. And David Dundas is Lord David Dundas. He did the music for Withnell. He's the old flatmate of Bruce Robinson. He said the moment that Marwood looks out the window of the Jaguar and pulls his glasses down, flips down those shades, he looks so much like Bruce Robinson that Dundas thought it was Bruce Robinson. So he is <laughs> representing the writer and director who lived this. Yeah. So I looked up Bruce Robinson and thought, where's his sense of entitlement come from? The swagger. And Bruce Robinson went to a secondary modern in Kent. And Kent's still got grammar schools. Still has today. So if you're in a secondary modern in Kent, you've really not come from good stock. You're not even getting the advantages of being able to move socially. He is a complete outsider to this. Like a lot of people are when they're the first person in their family to go to drama school. The first. Bruce Robinson has the swagger of someone of enormous entitlement, but it's a 60s version of that where you could be Michael Caine and raise up and have a chance to leave your class. Bruce Robinson is a complete outsider. He's watching these posh, rich actors going, I want to be like them. And he affects their swagger, but he's a hard worker. Mm. And the thing about Marwood is Marwood will take the work. It's a bloody good little theatre. There's not much of a part though, is it? Well, it's better than nothing. They make you cut your hair off. So what, you'd lose a leg? Yeah, and it's a lovely study of that 60s shake-up of the class system that meant suddenly there's an access to these sort of slightly grand professions that more and more working-class kids are getting into. And Bruce Robinson, I never realised, and it changes the way you watch with now, is an outsider to that, and he's watching these posh, entitled people and wondering at them. And it depicts that moment of change really, really well. Absolutely, yeah. Do you write poems? No, I wish I could, it's just thoughts, really. Are you published? Oh, no. When they were welcome, I mean, you know, there was the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool and the, the, the Royal Court Productions, David Hare Productions. And yeah. So it felt like they were welcome in that world. It, what's interesting in the scene when they meet Monty for the first time, <laughs> away from the vegetables and the Hamlet quotes and everything else, <laughs> um, and the problematic homosexual lines and things which is which actually still makes it makes me wince in any moment now he's going to get into his tights and not only that he's a raving homes that, that's the line that, i mean it but, feels like it's set then it's what would have it, been. I, it, it reads well and also certainly bruce robinson said the way dennis o'brien at handmade want him depicted which is a complete mincing queen yes there's so much more dignity and humanity in the way that uncle monty is played by rich griffiths He's definitely a real person who's really suffering and 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 tortured. It's true. It's yeah. not. It's not. Un, it's absolutely. It's outsider really from from my sort of perspective. <laughs> watching a sort of beloved film, the same thing happens in the Big Lebowski. There's a, yeah. there's a couple of lines in that as well. But it's the moment where he asks Marwood where he schooled. Where did you yes. school? And Withnell isn't specific. He says he went to the other place. Where did you school? He went to the other place, Monty. Went to Eton, which must mean Eton. Yes. Otherwise, anything else, anything else is completely incomprehensible. Yeah. To Monty, they, they exist in a world where that is normal. Where they, that brilliant way that anyone really posh, you met really really posh people, they assume you are also really posh. It's a strangely generous thing. It, no, it but is. But also absolutely. born out of never having met anyone who isn't really yeah. posh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but it opens up the idea that there is a a boundary to get past. The fact that they're whispering to each other in Latin. Yeah. An entirely new language, dead language. <laughs> it's their code. Yes. It does it's feel their that. code, yeah. And you, you feel the various different factions that existed in British culture at that time. Yeah. And the blurring of them that, that has been represented by hippiedom and everything being shaken up. And then Monty representing 
an older world, but a world in which he is not quite free to exist. Yeah. The 60s have come along and he's sort of stealing love and sort of half closeted and sort of half out, pretending that the boys who are coming out to Crow Crag are, 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 are like his sons. His, his sons as <clears> the farmer. Yeah. He's up there with his son. Yeah, oh, that's him. All the subtext is there to sort of say, this is a strange world that is being left behind by the liberal 60s into the 70s. And that's why you mustn't hold back, let it ruin your youth as I nearly did of Eric. It's like a tide. Give in to it, boy. Go with it. It's society's crime, not ours. I'm not homosexual, Monty. Yes, you are. Of course you are. You feel that these things are changing. And watching it again with, with fresh eyes as, a, as an adult and realising this is all in there. Yeah. Um, and Perhaps the, it's not quite as liberal as we, as we remember. Yeah. And it's set at a time of change. The idea being that they've had this high watermark Danny the drug dealer says that that is also in um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where where Hunter S. Thompson looks down over the from, from a high vantage point and sees that her tide mark has washed up and is about to wash back and culture is about to go back to where it was yeah the greatest decade in the history of mankind is over and as presuming Ed here has so consistently pointed out we have failed to paint it black this feeling that for a minute there was a possibility that the world would change. And both Danny and Uncle Monty give speeches of great regret that the world is changing. Yes. That this is the last time this will be possible. Maybe the last time it will be possible to be this elegantly wasted. Oh, my boys. My boys, we're at the end of an age. We live in a land of weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in, shat on by Tories, shoveled up by Labour. And here we are, we three, perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. And I think watching it, as I watched it in the 90s, as you would have done, I felt, oh, I can't go back there. I feel I ache for this period, the last moment of the 60s, the thing that, boomers keep insisting was the best time of all history yeah and we missed it well ret- retrospectively if the end of the 90s feels like the end of the 60s to me. <laughs> i think there's so much common ground between the 90s and the 60s my parents certainly were in their 20s in the 60s so it obviously informed them my mum went to see Jimi hendrix and the beatles wow. but that felt like in the 90s there was a sort of new freedom that wasn't there in the 80s somehow. There were yeah. sort of game shows that became sexy and, <laughs> and it, everything was loud and there was live music everywhere you looked and on every TV channel, The Word, things like that. And a restaging you know, of that, the 60s almost. I think like a sealed so. knock so. attempt to do it again. Yeah. Including the sexism. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely All the course. good and the bad of the 60s yeah. was back. Yeah. But also that sense of possibility and of change. And as someone said, we always forget, just pre-Britpop, rave and things were sort of saying opening your mind and sort of altered consciousness. It was very hippie. Yes. That's funny. When, when all the road protests were going on, things were always oh, like, it was like sort of proper. It did feel slightly with Nailey. Massively. I mean, you walk around Camden in the sort of 1995, everyone looked like with Nailey. <laughs> yes. You know, everyone had a sort of long jacket, trench coat or a, or a box kind of leather jacket and, and greasy hair and scarves and rollies everywhere. All right. I walk with you through the park. We can drink it on the way. Watching the film, I just felt like I was sort of immersed in that world anyway. What I think it does do um, with Nell is, is touch that moment that we've all had where we're all broke, all starving, all aspiring, and all knowing 
that it might not work in our lives, you know. And uh, for one of them it does not, definitely, and for one of them it might. One of the things that Withnell promises is that even if you are living a terrible, terrible, low-quality, low-budget, desperate lifestyle, you will be an absolute hero. You are the hero of your situation. And it's got that in common with that kind of charity shop wit of Jarvis Cocker, that you could be in crap clothes, but you'll be the wittiest guy. Very 90s promise that you didn't need to have loads and loads of high-fashion clothing. You could just survive... Or in a sort of grungy existence and be the hero of your own story. Oh, we don't look the same as you. And we don't do the things you do. But we live around here too. And that is Im- immensely appealing and very comforting, especially for someone who, who is uh, self dramatizing. My dad will pick up the boxes in a week. And he's going to do something about the car. Absolutely. I drove a Skoda for 1996, and it was one of those old sort of Soviet Skodas (laughs) where you could light a fire underneath it. Skoda's new Super Estelle puts a man in the street and his dog on the road. And Skoda was literally a joke. It was a school, it was a playground joke. Just for characters, jokes about things. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted one to drive into sort of counterculture and, and it was vomit green and it had the boot was at the front and, it, and the boot would buckle when you drove it. But that's how much I wanted to not care about what anyone thought. I mean, the thing about Withnail is, is that, yes, the building next door to them is being knocked down. They've got a scuzzy car. They're living off coffee in a, in a bowl. But they're, they seem... At, at ease with it. They're having a fucking good time, it seems. Yeah, it's... I don't just mention Jarvis Cocker. It feels slightly common people Yeah. That there's a drama and an elegance to the slumming in it. And there's no sense in which they are not desperate. But you know that at any point they could spend some of the booze money on food. Yeah, exactly. But it, it represents perfectly that period where that's the last thing you'd do. Yeah. And I remember that. The order you spend money is it goes on booze and drugs first. And if you've got any left, it goes on dry pasta. It's that perfect student analogue that I think a lot of people come to the film as students because it kind of feels like student living. Yeah, absolutely. The romance of student living, the poverty tourism. It's a bit young ones. Yes. The same appeal of going, oh, mum and dad have told us to wash up. We've stopped washing up. There are things in there. There's a tea bag growing. They've told us to eat properly. We've stopped eating properly. Apart from a raw potato, it's the only solid to have passed my lips in the last 60 hours. This is what it feels like to be left on your own, to look after <laughs> yourself. And the answer is, well, priority is cider first. And also very yeah. specific orders of drinks, but no food. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's when Monty comes into the, the picture that, that, that we start thinking about food. But <clears throat> up until then, it's a raw potato and a pork pie. So I think it's definitely <laughs> poverty tourism. It was the most depressing period of my life. You'd stay in the Spread Eagle till about three, and then uh, you'd uh, come back and have a couple of bottles of wine, and uh, and then you'd start again. A lot of drinking was done. A lot of drug-taking was done. And then I came back one day, and then I wrote it in the introduction to the first script of Whitten, and I, you know, I literally wept on the boards. And I just found it amusing, made me laugh the predicament of a thespian in crisis. But also this idea that I'm quite happy with this lifestyle. This lifestyle is sort of fueling some sort of inspiration. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, a, and, a, affecting yeah. a bohemian lifestyle. Well, it's the end of the party, isn't it? That's yes. The, the film begins at the end of the party. <laughs> when, the party when, is the 60s. This is yeah, the end of the mess. Not just everywhere. the party, not just the end of the decade, but the end of the bender. Yeah, they're coming round with that hangover. And that enormous glamour that you feel when you get fascinated by that around that age you start to read about like keith moon and those great hangover crazies of the 60s going oh i want to be like them without realizing they'd be awful to be around yeah these people. it was only since i was sort of 35 that i thought actually do you know what i fucking hate to hang out with keith moon yeah awful. imagine that and then he said yeah give me your hand with this television set so i so i got over and i got one end of the television and the ladies were over that side and we went over he went over to the window and he threw it out of the window <laughs> The fantasy of, like, I know Vivian Stanchel and Graham Chapman, all these sort of alcoholics, you feel, oh, they're the real rebel. Went, boom! And the porter ran out to the hotel. And he looked up and said, what are you doing? And Mooney says, answer the phone. He says, all the radio's coming next. <laughs> I think it was terrible to have to write with Graham Chapman. <laughs> Unbearable job. No wonder John Cleese is like he is. He had that pressure on him. Yeah, the romance of the wasted person, the elegantly wasted person. And, yeah, the idea, this is... Harry Nilsson, though. So go down there, and, and I introduced John to his Brandy Alexander. Next thing you know, there were these burly characters throwing uh, <laughs> us in the alley, you know. I yeah, mean, but, uh, you know. yeah, I'm a big Nilsson fan, but yeah. so also, yeah. as the more I read about it, the more I go, yeah, it's quite a selfish man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the older you get, the, the less romantic it feels. But this is a film that really taps into that feeling of... That party looks sensational. It's a film that when you first watch, you're sort of looking up at these characters. They're sort of like oh, your older brother's mates. Yeah. When you get when you get to our age, um, <laughs> you don't start looking down, but you start to empathise with their psychological trappings. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. You forget that they would. That this is obviously this is they're very young. This is their first film. Bruce had never directed before. Paul had done TV, but I don't I don't know that he had actually made a feature film. And I had certainly never done. I'd done one small TV part before that. To the extent that Uncle Monty, I looked up, he's thirty nine. Richard Griffiths really? is not even forty. Wow. So these are people who are exactly that generation that were finding that the whole world was arranged for them. The young in the sixties. And they're just about to go into the 70s, and the 70s and the 80s are going to be nowhere near as much fun yeah. to be young in. You say that the rot started in the 60s. The kind of impact that the permissive society, all the permissive ideas, which were then pouring out. People must seek work, and I believe they are. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. We will never abandon our belief in God. And they're at the end of that, and they've seen this opportunity to be wasted and, and crazy and profligate and waste their talents and waste everything, but so sure that their talent is enough to make them spectacular. It's not insignificant that my very favourite moment of it when I was a kid was him on the top of the mountain shouting, I'm going to be a star. You'll all suffer. And that's exactly what it feels like at college, where you go, what if I came out and I was spectacular? <laughs> and you don't know what you're going to be. No. And maybe that's the agony of Withnail, is they're, they're about to find out who they're going to be. Yeah. And the hidden pain is that Withnail, who's based on Vivian McCarroll, who's Bruce Robinson's old flatmate, is going to die. I really feel Withnail's not going to make it. I do worry that the greatest performance he will ever give is to those wolves at the end. And wow. I think there's a tragedy to it. That born out of the fact that you know the guy who was based on didn't make it. That I think Bruce Robinson, even if you don't read that yourself, 
there's a feeling of it in there somewhere that this might be the greatest two performances he gives might be on the top of that hilltop yeah and when he does hamlet to quite literally a captive audience yes what a piece of work is a man how noble in reason how infinite in faculties how like an angel in apprehension how like a god the beauty of the world pagan of animals yet to me what is this quintessence of dust i've never thought of it like that i've never thought that here's someone on a, a, a clear downward spiral and it seems so obvious now i always hoped that this would be the u-turn for him yeah maybe that's and that he would either go back to his mum and dad or <laughs> uh, you know but he's 30 so he that's something you have to consider in the 60s a time when that was an already an old dad yeah yeah um if you did want to do that you know so yeah he's chosen to trap himself in a profession that if he hasn't made a name for himself by now he might not yeah. man delights not me no no women neither no women Maybe the sense of hope in this film comes from the fact that Withnall's greatest performance is being Withnall. His existence, his performance for the ladies in the Penrith tea rooms. Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. This swaggering Richard E. Grant performance, that's Withnall's starring role. His starring role is in his own life, which you get the feeling is Bruce Robinson's relationship to Vivian McCarroll, a man who would never amount to much as an actor but made a huge impression on his friend to say this guy was witty and sensational and fast and hilarious you had any training in the martial arts yes as a matter of fact i have before i became a journalist i was in the territorials do you know when you first came in i knew you were a services man you're watching him give the greatest performance of his career and it's being alive yes it's true he's still the clown the school clown which sort of takes me to the music actually because i think the music's so beautifully set up it's it's so beautifully skewed what i love about the music the original music obviously i love the soundtrack anyway you know hendrix and king curtis and and, and the rest but the original music is mostly a melancholic guitar motif yeah but it's caked in a circusy pipe organ facade. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's all dressed a, up in. It's in a big tent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the melancholic clown. Um, yeah, underneath the makeup. Towards the end, especially the, the final moment where, where, where Widnall gives his speech to the wolves and then walks into the rain in Regent's Park and di- disappears off, and the music comes up underneath it, and it is the waltz of a tragic clown. Yeah. A, a performer who all he wants to do is perform for an audience, and no one will listen to him. And all the way through, he's been performing for the clouds, or for one person on a hill, or for those women in the tea room. But no one will ask him to perform for money, and no one will ask him to perform and be the centre stage. And at the end, as he walks off, the music comes up and you realise that he is a, just a sad clown. Yeah. I find the circus music attached to that sad motif when he's walking away from the from the wolf pen. I find the music there, the themes, actually quite grotesque and it sort of creeped me out a little bit when I first saw it. 
Yeah, just because it sort of insists on itself. It insists that everything's fine when yeah. deep down he's depressed to the point of dangerously harming himself. Yeah, and we've had that echo there comes a point in a young man's life when one morning he awakes and quite reasonably says to himself I will never play the Dane Uncle Monty says at that point his ambition ceases it's part I intend to play uncle and you'll be marvellous and then Withnall takes the one chance he gets to play the Dane and does it to no one not even humans just animals yeah pagan of animals and then walks away and this music comes up and says, pity this man. Yes, It insists, you're right, it insists on your reaction, which is this is a grotesque dance he's doing. Yeah. This whole hour and 40 minutes has been him performing to people who don't care. Yes. No one's listening to him. It's the unlistened to. That's the tragedy of it. Maybe the clock stopped ticking. Maybe this is the checkpoint. The moment where, you know, I'm not going to be Hamlet, I'm going to be Polonius. Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The tragedy of all actors, do you get your one big chance or do you not? And it is nothing to do with talent, it's to do with luck. It's not in your control. This is a desperate job. And one in which, very often, the situation with Uncle Monty is the only way of getting through, that, as, as Bruce Robinson found, that, that sometimes you'll be abused by powerful men or find yourself very vulnerable and exposed and taken advantage of. They're acting it out. Yes. For our, and yet you're laughing all the way through at these desperate clowns. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting how, even with Withnail, the idea of financial freedom comes into play he doesn't he never mentions the cigar commercial to him <laughs> yeah you know it's not highbrow enough yeah. so the thing that he's desperate to find out about the thing that he's sort of the thing that's actually sort of driving his anger at the beginning in the first act is the idea that he hasn't heard back from a cigar yeah. commercial audition much more of this i'm gonna play but meals on wheels what happens to your cigar commercial that's what i want to know what happened to my cigar commercial the promise of the 60s was we'd all be able to express ourselves and all be allowed to be artists we hope to make a thing that's free where people can just come and do and record and not have to ask could we have another microphone in the studio because we haven't had a hit yet if you want it, i was thinking watching it this time around 
first time I'd watched it since watching Get Back, the Beatles documentary. Right. That, you yeah. know the guy who yells, get in the back of the van? Yeah. Get in the back of the van! He is representing the same forces of behave yourselves, hippies, as the policeman in Get Back. I'm afraid, honestly, it's got to go down, otherwise it's going to be some arrests. No, I'm not threatening you anything, I'm telling you what's going to When the Beatles are playing on the roof and going, hey, it's the 60s, we can express ourselves. The answer is, no, you can't. Will you get back on your box? What Danny the drug dealer represents and what Withnail and Marwood represent is the world of the Beatles, of Apple. Yes. Of, we'll give you money to do anything. Self-expression is everything. Hey, the hippies, it's all going to work. They did run the one ad with the picture of the one-man band saying, send us your tapes and things, and we got billions of them. The tragic thing is, of course, we never found anything through that route that was any good. Quite apart from all the other ideas, people who wanted money to levitate or something totally bizarre. And then what the other forces of, whether it's the police, uh, who are saying, behave, you can't go and get drunk and drive up the M1. Are you refusing to fill this bag? I most certainly am. Or whether it's Uncle Monty, the forces of the past, are saying, we're about to reassert control. And when Danny says they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, it's all over. Stop insisting that the world's going to change. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. And I think that's the sadness in the theme of Withnall, is that these people were told, this decade, as long as you're talented and ambitious, you'll do fine. And they don't get it. For Christ's sake, Withnall, stop laughing. <laughs> this is a nice to be fixed. Will you stop laughing? Then what a time is out. Maybe the rocket was always made of papier-mâché <laughs> and it was all just dressing up. Yeah. This idea of rock and roll, of Mersey beat, of psychedelica, of a revolution, these kind of themes that were passed through the decade yeah. of the 60s, maybe it was all just dressing up. I remember having conversations with my dad about the 60s and he saw some incredible acts and amazing artists, but he said it was pretty shit, actually. The yeah. food was crap. Everyone was smoking. So there was no deodorant. You know, you walked into a pub and it just stunk. It's just like the, the, the little things that are every day, what he remembers about the 60s, it, 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 he said it's not quite as romantic as most people like to remember. There's a great uh, story about George Harrison uh, going out to Haight-Ashbury, the sort of San Francisco, the hippie dream, to go and see the, yeah. how the hippie model of society would work. And he came back and said, You know, I went to Haight-Ashbury expecting it to be this brilliant place and it was just full of horrible, spotty, dropout kids on drugs. Yeah. With lazy people laying around and not washing. And you must remember this is a handmade film, so George Harrison is involved in the making of it. This is him saying, this is what it felt like a bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, that summer of love, a lot of that was bullshit, really. Maybe it was just a big fancy dress party. Yeah. With really, <laughs> really good music and drugs. I'm making time. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. Maybe they were always selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. Maybe be I'm sure before then they were probably selling Beatles wigs in of Woolworths. Of course they were, and, yeah. and aping every single thing and exploiting every single sort of fashion movement throughout that entire decade. Now, you'll like these. You'll really dig them. They're fab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seen dead in them. The dead grotty... Got it? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. I feel that Withnail 
and his desperation with the cigar commercial yeah. is offering us a window into perhaps the realities of the 60s. Love. Everybody needs it. Love with pop cards. London is a country coming down from its trip. We are 91 days from the end of this decade and there's going to be a lot of refugees. Yeah. <laughs> the prophets in it, the two people who give the big speeches, which is Danny uh, and Uncle Monty, they're both views of changing times. The old order changeth, yielding place to new. God fulfills himself in many ways. And soon, I suppose... I shall be swept away by some vulgar little tumour. And Danny's one is this huge regret that we have, as presuming he had said we failed to paint it black, we had this big chance and we blew it. And the answer was, because it was never really there yeah. for us. Why is it so comforting? Is it just that it's lovely to see that someone else has been there too, when you're feeling a little bit blue and depressed to go, even the 60s were rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's the very human desire to decompress. <laughs> I think that it's something that we all have. Where exactly have you two been? Holiday in the countryside. That's a very good idea. What I love about the film, what I find so comforting about the film, is obviously the way it looks and everything else, but it's just the very linear story. You never leave the protagonist. Yeah. You're there the whole time. And it almost feels like it's in real time. When the second act begins and they embark on the journey up to Cumbria... You feel like it's it could be almost nuts in May, which is another yeah, big comfort yeah. film of mine, because it's quite slow. There are a lot of scenes in the film that are essentially very small plot points dressed up as big set pieces. Yeah. So, for example, the scene where Monty drives them into town and gives them this sort of two blue notes. Is that a fiver or is that a yeah. tenner or a twenty? Pair of blues. Is it a pair of blues. Yeah, fiver, two fivers. A pair of blues. And they go off to the pub and get rattar <laughs> and then go into the cake shop and you've got this sort of iconic scene in a tea shop. Miss Blenner has it. Telephone the police. Really, that plot point is so that he... I guess so that Marwood can phone home and check in with his agent about yeah. Journey's End. Uh, doesn't that a thing... Apparently they're still seeing people. It's very minimal. Very Everything. minimal. There's not it's really any plot point there at the all. The story is tiny and very, very simple. And it basically, it's, it's a move up and a move back. It's, yeah. They go on a journey, they go somewhere new. <laughs> if you listen to Bruce Robinson talking about the edit, he said they kept saying, can we lose this bit? Can we lose that bit? And he went, can we lose Danny the drug dealer? Well, if you lose Danny the drug dealer, you might as well lose Uncle Monty. Because yeah. no one is a supporting pillar of the plot. They weren't going to give the money for the making time drive back to London. And he said, well, if you're not going to show the drive back, then don't show the drive up. Here comes another fucker. And he had to fund it out of his own wallet, £30,000 of his own money, to film the, the voodoo child yeah, return drive. Yeah. Closing part of the M1, I would yeah. imagine. Any, any scene Crazy. is removable. But that also means that everything is essential. And the other lovely thing about it, for a meandering, plotless film, it keeps your interest. It is edited really tightly. It is not a boring or slow film, even though nothing happens. Yeah. Someone has gone through and made a lot of very wise decisions, which again, I think, is why it's a great cult comfort film, is that the next thing that's coming along is going to be as great as the thing you're watching now. You don't want to lose any scene. So I imagine as an edit, it was quite a hard thing to do because you could cut everything. <laughs> you could, absolutely. 
Do you think you could tell me where I could buy some coal and wood? There has to be me son. He runs this farm. Where is your son? Up in top field. You can't miss him. His legs bound in polyphon. What I love about the second act is we've already established that they can't survive in their own environment. <laughs> yes. How are they going to make it work in the Lake District? And the answer is trying to shoot salmon from a from a river or using plastic bags for boots, completely unprepared. They can't um, kill the chicken. Yeah. How do you make it die? It almost feels like you're with them on a weekend away. When they go for yeah. walks, you go for walks. Yeah, yeah. When they go to the, the Crow and Crown. Brilliant name for a pub. Such <laughs> no, You don't see the sign, but it would be so funny. <laughs> the, crow, the Crow and Crown. Crow and Crown. Um, <laughs> It's uh, nicotine stained, looks like the inside of a lung. That's how it's described. And, and and I would love nothing more than to have a pint in there. Yeah. Or just hunker down for the evening like they do. I just feel like I'm away with them the whole time. We'll have another pair of large scotches. And you're, you're enjoying watching them. You're right about its slight nuts in May quality. It does feel like a really, really good high quality TV play. Yes. But filmed with all the lovely richness of those great handmade films that look great, like The Missionary and things. It's filmed beautifully. And filmed like a drama, not like a comedy. It's not brightly lit. It's not overacted, though the acting style is huge. It's very real and very grounded and not joke heavy, but dialogue and line heavy. It feels like a lovely thing to watch. And part of the enjoyment is that you're not as cold as they are. And yes. you're not as hungry as they are. So you are observing them. Yeah. We've gone on holiday by mistake. We're in this cottage here. Are you the farmer? Stop saying that, Withnell. Of course it's a fucking farmer. And you mentioned earlier on about survival. And this is something that occurred to me watching it this time. It never occurred to me before. There are no women in it, apart from Mrs. Blenner Hassett. Yeah. And it's a very male cast. Yes. But they are constantly threatened by men. Look at him. Look at Jeff Wode. His head must weigh 50 pounds on its own. By masculinity, by rage and anger. Get in the back of the van! And competence. Ah, I could bring you some logs of later, but I've got the cows on that defence first. Like the poacher. You want working on, boy? By violence. I'll murder the Pyrrhus! They are feminised men because they are ponces. Ponce! They're actors. And it's a film in which every man in it who you're following is very unmasculine. I have a heart condition. If you hit me, it's murder. They can't use the gun properly. They're really not prepared for survival. There's a man on the mountain. Why he's up there, fuck that. They're constantly threatened, even to the extent they're threatened by a randy bull. Show no fear! Just run at it! Well, that can't be sensible, can it? The bastard's about to run at me! Well, he's running! Yes, yeah, I know he is! Wants to get down there and have sex with those cows. Shut up! <laughs> they are not people who can survive <laughs> male aggression. Yeah. Imagine the size of his balls. Imagine getting into a fight with a fucker. And they are not suited to survive. Maybe it's the farmer. At two o'clock in the morning. It's the cow. She's come to kill us. What are we going to do? And it hadn't occurred to me that it's incredibly comforting and enjoyable to watch deeply unmasculine men. We have to tackle him. You stay in bed, pretend to be asleep. He'll go for you. When he does, I'll jump on his back. Yeah. yeah. If I'm just saying this, throwing this out there, if you are a deeply unmasculine man, these are my people. We mean no harm. Um, they can't throw and they can't catch. And I bloody love that about them, that they are as crap as I would be in the same situation. And it's very funny to watch. Yes, absolutely. Having to cope with that sort of atypical alphaism. If I hear more words out of you, I'll 
I put one of these here black pods on you. Don't threaten me with a dead fish. What's interesting is, I think, is that, you know, they're, they're in the comfort of their own flat, I say the comfort of their own flat, in the squalor <laughs> the of their own flat, they are happy to perform for each other. Yeah. And certainly after they're caught out in the pub and they're threatened in the pub by the burly Irish dude. What's your name, Matt? Fuck! They try and perform their way out of that. I have a heart condition. And then... St- from that point, every sort of stranger they meet, the, the landlord in the Crow and Crown, yeah. the punters in the tea shop, they make up a phony existence. So he, yeah. Withnell says, oh, I was served in the army, I was in the forces. <laughs> yes. And I don't necessarily think it's just to get a free drink. I think it's just to play someone else. We are multi-millionaires. We shall buy this place and fire you immediately. Yes, we'll buy this place and we'll install a fucking jukebox in here. They're constantly insisting they're not who they are. Listen, we're bona fide, we're not from London. But they know it's unacceptable. Yes. And actually, I'm God, I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons it appeals to students. One of the things that happens as a student, you go away from your home and you're safe in your college or your drama school or your art school or whatever, university. But you have to go into the town. Mm. And in the town, everyone hates you. So very often you keep your voice down. You don't try and attract attention. The worst, most hated students, the student grant type students, are the ones who draw attention. And there's always the risk that someone's going to lamp you. Absolutely. And Withnell really sums up that experience of, when I've had a couple of drinks, I might be flamboyantly attracting attention. And it's a real student feeling that you're kind of unwelcome yeah. in the real world. Yeah, it's true. That, it depicts that brilliantly. <laughs> My drama school has moved from where it used to be. It's moved down to Peckham now. And there is a distinct lack of students being loud in Woodgreen High Street and sort of jetting down the street and doing plies in the pub and, and, and sort of singing their drink order. Because uh, that's like absolutely what it was like. It was like sort of fame was happening in North London. And I genuinely miss it. But, but there, was, there was safety in numbers. You were sort of safe with yourself and you could coexist in the outside world as long as there was more than one of you. We're in danger. We've got to get out. What are you talking about? I've been called a punce. What fucker said that? They have each other, they can look after each other, they can... There's a defence in there, but the way that Marwood is very hypersensitive to how loud Withnall is. Tarts, they love it. Listen, I'm trying to drive this thing as quietly as possible. If you don't shut up, I get stopped by the police. There's a feeling that this kind of behaviour, this very almost Julian and Sandy noisiness, which was supposed to be permitted (laughs) by the 60s. You could be flamboyant and big, has a cost. The society won't let them do it. And they're always up against these very frighteningly competent men who are their enemy. And then also they're threatened by an incredibly effeminate man. You are a toilet trader. Yes. Who is also a threat to them. Because the 60s didn't exist, Joel. That's, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all a joke. Yeah, it's very odd the way that they're, they're depicted that way. And that was a huge risk. I know stories from many people that certainly being an actor in the 60s, there was a threat of a sort of, that mm. you were expected you were a chorus line boy to be available yeah. to, to sort of aggressive uh, interest from impresarios and, uh, and rich men who would just take their pick. Mm. That was definitely a part of, and also Bruce Robinson suffered that with, with Zeffirelli. Didn't he? Yeah, which is Carl. mentioned in the beginning of the film, right? Yeah, yeah. Romeo and Juliet on, yeah. in the newspaper. Oh, look at this little bastard. 
before it lands Plumrow for top Italian director. Of course he does. Probably on a tenner a day. And I know what for. Two pound ten a tip and a fiver for his arse. Yeah, that feeling. Yeah. He'd been through that and the idea being that you were supposed yeah. to be available and vulnerable. These are vulnerable, sensitive young men who are very talented. And the 60s said, you can go out and be yourselves. And they're finding they sort of can't. Yeah. Because they're, they're then going to be picked on. Yeah, totally. So we can't stay. You won't leave me alone. All right, we'll get the lunch down and then we'll leave. The idea of them being vulnerable is very interesting, especially that scene with the bull. Yes. Which apparently, again, Dennis O'Brien said, cut that out. And, and Bruce Robinson was saying, I want the scene with the bull. I want the scene with the bull. I want a randy bull. The countryside, masculinity, sexuality to threaten them. This thing wants sex with them. And they're going to run away. It's basically Uncle Monty again. Yes. They're constantly in a state of... Things are hammering at gates and windows to get in and get them. He's in. He's sharpening a knife. Kind of a horror film in yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. First time I watched it, I thought that's where it was going. It was going to be one of those sort of survival horror things. But so the, you thought the poacher was actually like a kind of it might have gone a slasher. Way. Yeah, I don't know. it looks a bit like a horror film. Yeah. Don't be a fool. He's got a gun. Bastard psychotic. You've only got to look at him. There's an astonishing interview with Bruce Robinson from about 99 where he talks about his fear of animals. And I like the bull. I always, I, I, I have a, a real fear of, um, of bulls. I have a fear of animals. You know, I was really frightened of that bull and I wanted the bull to be in there because it was about fear of something coming and getting. I used to have this recurring dream. You're obviously going to cut this, but anyway, I used to have this dream that there would be a rhinoceros trying to get in the window. And he says in his memoirs that he was abused by his stepfather right there's this very pretty clever witty funny young delicate performer under threat by these very forceful animal urges i'll see this fucking rhino was white and all gooey like a huge fetus with its sort of white horn wobbling around he's expressed through this drama and the two perfume ponces are threatened constantly by very aggressive men. Yeah. And I wonder whether he even knows that's the story he's written. But it does help you feel for them. And I think it is one of the secret stories of Widnall is about two delicate men. You said it's a survival story. Yes. How will they survive? The threat appears to be that energy. Very interesting. A coward you are, Widnall! An expert on bulls you are not! Ah! Fighting a bull with Jacob's cream crackers. (laughs) I love this. You can see the groceries... (laughs) And, and, that's and, a, I mean, oh, it's an allegory for that, or could be. Is 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 yeah? I mean, he's been shopping. He must know. I'm sure. Surely, I don't think it would be subconscious that decision, would it? And one of the reasons it is such a wonderful film is the more you watch it, the more you notice the small things, mm. and all the small things are considered. Yeah, and they're the right decisions. Now, garlic, rosemary, and salt. I can never touch meat until it's cooked. As a youth, I used to weep in butcher shops. Garlic, rosemary, and salt. <laughs> I still use that uh, to this day. Whenever, whenever there's a leg of lamb, every every spring. Um, <laughs> Could it be in bad form to plagiarise a toast? Depends entirely on the quality of the wine. In this instance, most certainly would not. In that case, you're a delightful weekend in the country. Oh, splendid. When Monty turns up, the the look of the film completely changes. It does, and becomes it? Yeah, a light yeah, yeah. film. The cottage looks like it's had a makeover. Yeah. Uh, and he's only just arrived in the dead of night. There's bacon on the grill. You can hear a fry-up cooking, breakfast in 10 minutes. All of a sudden, it's a functioning yes. world. 
Um, a grown-up's um, turned up and uh, someone's looking exactly. after Exactly, yeah. He's going to revitalise himself and you're going to finish the vegetables. I don't know how to do them. Well, of course you don't. You are incapable of indulging in anything but pleasure, am I not right? They can indulge themselves because there's, there's a minder there. It reminds me of when I used to go home at the weekend when I was a student and really enjoy my mum's cooking, whereas yeah. before perhaps I didn't quite so much. And if she said, oh, it's cottage pie tonight, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, God. But I used to love it. And we'd have a bottle of red wine, whereas I'd been drinking sort of aftershock in the week. <laughs> and, and it just, as you say, you as an audience feel so safe when, when Monty turns up. Yeah, because he keeps a sensational cellar. <laughs> a sensational cellar. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the moment you go, they're going to the, their quality of life goes up, and he brings safety. And then you realise that that's come at the cost of Withnell betraying his friend because he wouldn't do anything to keep that comforting yes. blanket around himself of privilege. And it comes with Monty. Yes, absolutely. If you think you're going to have a weekend's indulgence up here at his expense, which means him having a weekend's indulgence up here at my expense, you've got another thing coming. Withnell uses Monty. I mean, Withnell uses everyone. Um, <laughs> I give him my word. Well, the first thing tomorrow morning. Tomorrow? Tomorrow? What about tonight? It's not going to try. Oh, see, what do you think he's up here? He means business. That's another thing as well. I think it sort of, it sets the perimeters. You know, you feel like Withnell eventually learns what the perimeters are. Like, he believes i think that he's doing the right thing yeah get the house at all costs through whatever means <laughs> yes necessary i know what you're thinking but i had no alternative your bug has come a long way and i didn't want to put the wind up here. they need a holiday we'll do this yeah that's the bar absolutely and then when, when Monty turns up, he brings the comfort with him. You suddenly realise this is a nice house that he does bring young men to. Yeah. Suddenly the fire is blazing. The yeah. food is good. You do really want to be there playing oh. cards with these lovely witty men. And they're sharing banter and lines and he is accepting of them. He's not the guy from the pub and he's not the farmer. He brings all the luxury of Chelsea, a yes. place where they would be at home. Yes. When you're away from home, the idea that someone would turn up and bring home to you with them is a treat. It's a very luxurious scene, the, the Monty scenes when he comes and cooks for them and things. I love it. Absolutely love it. I wish I was there. <laughs> I can taste the meal. Yeah. But no proper facilities. All the glorious trials of youth, dear boy. When I was a lad, I'd rock a dwarf on my tandem with Rigglesworth and we'd just ride and ride. Around the meal is good conversation and good chat and rich ideas and things. That No one in this film is short of dialogue. No one is short of the right thing to say. Even the guy who's stoned out of his head is funny and witty and eloquent. What are you going to do with those? The joint I'm about to roll requires a craftsman. Can utilise up to 12 skins. It is called the Camberwell Coat. This is a film that the only thing they've got luxuriously is language, and it celebrates that. Oh, but how dreadful. Do you mean you've been up here in all this beastly mud and umska with that Wellingtons? It's funny that when they're around the table having dinner, and they, well, they're just sort of finishing up dinner, and Marwood is desperate to go home yeah. because I think he knows what's about to happen. <laughs> You're not on his side. Yes. You know, the antagonist in that situation is Richard E. Grant, is with now, I think. And he very much wants to stay because all of a sudden he's been presented with a beautiful roast lamb and a high-quality bottle of red. He wants to stay, and you want them to stay. Yes. You want this to happen, and you kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah, you don't want him to go back and get the job. Yeah. You want him to stay with Withnall. And the thing with is, Withnall. and it's horrendous because you've already seen the scene where... <laughs> 
Monty helps him look for the for the herbs uh, in his grocery bags, and he's essentially assaulting him at that point. Yeah, it's not uh, nice. So you know what's coming. Sure, we could find it together. But you don't care because you want to stay and watch them eat roast dinners. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the joy of watching them talk and make you laugh, the comedy of it is so cleverly balanced. I, mean, I know Bruce Robinson said, I hate jokes. The handmade were, were very much into sort of joke type of, of movies. At, at its very best, Life of Brian, fantastic, you know, but it isn't my, my kind of thing. Didn't want comedy lighting, didn't want comedy lines. I wanted truth and character, which, of course, as you know, as a, as a writer and performer, yeah. truth and character is really funny. Yes, absolutely. You don't need... Jokes sometimes belong to nobody. Good lines always belong to characters. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's good to, to have a, a sort of joke mechanics in in there somewhere, and I think we certainly do with, with ghosts and things like that. But absolutely, I mean, it's still... I think it's probably the most quotable film, certainly in my friendship groups, Yeah, uh, you know... But also, you know, it needs to be a good film. A film can be a quotable film, but also it has to be a good film first, yeah. I think. Certainly well-liked. Otherwise, what's the point of quoting to someone who doesn't know it? But, but you know, <laughs> I, mean, but they're, they're, I mean, there's Police Academy. That's quite quotable as well. <laughs> Do you think she's a better or worse film than Police, Police Academy? Academy? If I compare the two, I think it's a better film <laughs> it, than I mean, Police Academy. I, I'm sure. I think so. I'm sure the BFI would agree with you. Yeah. But... <laughs> Perfumes of nature sighing on our skin. What's lovely is it's a film that came out and found an audience, and it found an audience that then used it as a unit of exchange, saying that we like this. You look at the other films that Handmaid were making around the time, this film's mm. like water. I always feel as if I'm wearing a live chicken on my head. Oh. Water is a film that no one should be forced yes. to sit through, which should be a really good comedy film. It's pedigree, it's, it's written by good people, it's got good people in it, and yet no one would sit through that. Yeah. And that on paper is a load of jokes and a farce, but it's unwatchable. Whereas with that on paper, maybe has no jokes in it. Maybe you can't even see those jokes until you're with an audience and you realise you're all laughing together. Yes. Until you saw it finished, and you saw its texture and its depth. It's really strange for a film that is so beautifully written that you suspect it might not work on paper. So we put the film up and they start laughing. Not immediately, about 10 minutes in. They start sort of that sense of, oh, this is a funny film, you know. Is it funny? Yeah, but now they're laughing. And there were two girls in front of me. By about 35 minutes in, they were standing up to laugh, hanging over their seat in front of them. I thought they were going to choke. The casting of this and the direction of it and the way it's made and its confidence of tone is what you're laughing at. Yes. Maybe on paper it would look like it was a bit self-indulgent. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's an interesting point. The only people I know who like it or certainly have seen it are other artists, <laughs> other writers, actors, performers. Everyone I know, my friends sort of back home who I grew up with, I grew up watching Ghostbusters with and Predator and Robocop and, you know, those films. I don't think they would choose to watch with Nail and I. They would watch it and enjoy it. Yeah, um, yeah. But I don't think they'd choose to watch it. I, don't, I certainly don't think it would be in their top ten. I'm not saying that fridge engineers and, yeah. and plumbers can't enjoy no, no. A, a film about actors, but I think that it resonates with artists. It belongs to you. It's like a representation thing. Yeah. These are our guys. What you're saying is that, and this is a bold claim, which I'll hold you to, that this is Peter's friends, but good. 
(laughs) (laughs) They've detoxified Peter's friends. It's about lovey actors who think they're sensational, but this one is really brilliant. (laughs) Accident, black spot. These aren't accidents. They're throwing themselves into the road gladly. Throwing themselves into the road to escape all this hideousness. It's like I was listening to Ingrid's comfort blanket about the Goonies. Yeah, yeah. And how when you're watching that as a kid, you aspire to have that sort of adventure. You, that's, yeah. that's a dream situation. And I think if you have sort of aspirations away from being any sort of artist, then this just looks sad, depressing yeah. and, and sort of a bit destructive. Whereas if you're an artist, maybe it's the romance. It's the, that's the goal. What a wonderful thing. Because that, that then puts it in a, in a very strange and elite group of films, which I'm now thinking of and thinking of so warmly about. It. Everyone will have their own words of this. I think this about the film Frank. The Frank Sobotton yeah. film is a beautiful film about being an artist. Anvil. Yeah. Uh, Spinal Tap. Exactly. Which yeah. is often lumped together with as one of those quotable films. They're all films about the pain and stupidity of trying to make art when you're a bit of an idiot. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that's what's beautiful about this. Yeah, it's completely out of your out of your hands. Often you're just sort of you know tearing down a, a, a white river. Um, <laughs> but if you're not an artist or that way inclined, I'm not saying this film won't resonate with with all non-artists, of yeah. course. But I'm saying perhaps you have a greater understanding of the plight of artists when you are one, and that sometimes the plight is a challenge, a gauntlet that you must run in order to get there somehow. I don't know. I don't, that, that really links in with what we're saying. about say this is a self-imposed misery. Yeah. They have got enough money if they don't try and numb all the pain with booze. They have got enough money if they don't spend it all on drugs. The life they've chosen for themselves of poverty and desperation might look like, oh, it's poverty tourism, pure Jarvis Cocker, pure common people. But that is the life very often of people who've chosen to not have a regular secure income in order to do something mad and creative. They found themselves trapped here, but they've trapped themselves in that place themselves. Yeah. This was their decision. Yes. Maybe that speaks to you. I think so. I mean, I sort of liken it to the end of The Last Crusade when they each try and sort of find the grail. And if you're not careful, you're going to get your head chopped off. You're (laughs) going to fall through a bridge. You're going to, you know, there are many pitfalls in this life the life that we've chosen but it's a challenge that keeps us there that's wonderful what a beautiful thing it is a film about mad doomed artists that immediately appeals to mad doomed artists obviously it's, it's clearly yours it belongs to yeah, you thank you I thank give you, you with much. that or not <laughs> are you having your mind pull over you haven't got a license no I'm making time Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.